Our New Testament lesson comes from Mark's Gospel, the third chapter, beginning with the 20th verse. Jesus is in the midst of his Galilean public ministry. He has been going around ministering to crowds, healing people, casting out demons, teaching the ways of God to people. Then he names the 12 apostles and he goes to a house probably in Capernaum and they are probably to rest, but it doesn't happen. Everyone seems to be converging on Jesus at the same time. This pericope is entitled in our pew Bibles, Jesus and Beelzebub, and will also include Jesus' mother and brothers at the end of this reading. Listen now to God's word. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister, and mother. May God bless the reading and the hearing of this portion of his holy word. Let us pray. Dear God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. William Golden's novel is a disturbing one about the evil that lives inside of us, the evil that we are all capable of. Set in the midst of a raging war, a plane evacuating schoolboys from Britain is shot down over a deserted tropical island. At first, the boys set about devising ways to be rescued. 
They figure out how to make a signal fire that someone might see them on that deserted island. They divide up and go hunting for food to keep themselves from starving. And they spend their time playing on the island, enjoying the delights and the strangeness of their new island home. But as time goes on, Ralph, who from the very beginning had been elected leader, becomes increasingly at odds with another boy, Jack, who leads the boys who hunt for food. The conflict escalates between Ralph and Jack, and before long, all-out warfare happens between the two groups of children. Jack's loyal followers start hunting the other boys. Simon is killed. The first murder happens. And then another boy, Piggy, is killed. And his eyeglasses smashed. The hunt is on for Ralph. When suddenly and abruptly a British naval officer appears on the beach. And the schoolboys have been rescued. The boys seem to realize the savages they have become, and they all weep. This dark, disturbing novel about the evil within the human heart is titled Lord of the Flies. Jesus wants to talk to us this morning about evil. The evil within the demons, Satan, Beelzebub, which some translate Lord of the Flies. William Golden must have thought so too. Our scripture text finds Jesus on the edge of chaos, surrounded by that darkness on your bulletin cover. He has been attracting large crowds, healing many sick people, driving out demons and evil spirits. He has named the 12 apostles, and now he heads probably to Capernaum for some rest. But everyone seems to be converging on this Jesus. A large crowd keeps after him that he might heal them and their loved ones. Jesus' family is on their way to this house to see if they can check out, all, check out their boy and see if Jesus is okay. And then the scribe from Jerusalem are making that long journey from the south because they believe that Jesus is acting in league with the devil. Everyone is surrounding Jesus, converging on him. We are on the edge of chaos. The sick people, everyone seems to be want to find Jesus to judge him. The sick people want, are judging that Jesus is indeed a person with incredible healing powers, and he is able to cast out demons and heal diseases. They're, they're judging Jesus, hopefully. The family members are judging Jesus because they think perhaps he has gone overboard with this God thing and that now they are concerned that Jesus is no longer stable and in his right mind. And the scribes and the religious leaders are judging Jesus to be an agent of Satan possessed by Beelzebub. In their minds, Jesus doesn't seem to know anymore the difference between the good people and the bad people. Jesus does not seem to respect religion 
He's just too different to be right. He is too different to be of God. The plot to silence Jesus, to kill Jesus, has already begun. The darkness is very near. All these religious leaders came to Jesus, calling him names and speaking harshly of him. But Jesus does not call them names back. (laughs) Instead of calling them names, Jesus tells them parables, two sets of little stories. One about how Satan cannot drive out Satan because a house divided cannot stand, cannot stand. And secondly, and strangely, a little story about how a thief, a thief cannot break into a strong man's house and steal his belongings unless the thief first ties up the strong man and then takes his stuff. Jesus is like that thief who first binds up Satan, the strong man, and then heals the sick people and casts out the demons. All of Jesus' words are making the same point. Jesus is not Satan's man. Jesus stands against Satan, and he does very loving and kind things to all people. And then Jesus says some of the strangest words he ever says to us. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said these words because the religious leaders, the ones who knew their Bibles the best, were judging Jesus. In truth, they were misjudging Jesus. They said Jesus heals people because he is possessed with an evil spirit. The people Jesus is accusing of having the unpardonable sin are not foreigners or pagans or atheists. They are the religious people who use the Bible to sanction and approve the hating of other people. In this case, Jesus. Jesus is offended that religious people are coming to him and calling his ministry of healing other people evil. Anne Lamott, whom I quoted a good bit two weeks ago, says that you know you have created God in your own image when your God hates all the same people you hate. Jesus knew what you and I should know, that it is possible to find a Bible verse to justify and sanctify every prejudice. and give us reason to dismiss and despise people mainly because they are different from us.
Jesus, in our text, is the victim of religious prejudice. And he will remain a victim of religious prejudice until his death. He will be killed in the name of God. He will be killed by good, Bible-believing people who are the leaders of their synagogues and their churches. Jesus doesn't want it to happen to us. If you read your Bible, and your Bible is at odds with the love of Jesus for all people that lives in your heart, then trust Jesus. But too often, we go looking for a scripture. Be careful how you read your Bibles. Be careful about your understanding of your God. Lest you convince yourself that God approves our prejudices and sanctions the hatreds of our lives. Your religious convictions can be the seedbed of eternal sin. Not because the sins themselves are unpardonable. God can forgive any sin. No sin exempt. But these sins are unpardonable because you have grounded them in your God. And you don't think you are sinning. You never ask for pardon. And you never receive it. It is an eternal sin. Jesus will tell his family at the end of our text, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. It will take Jesus' death upon the cross with his arms stretched wide open for all the world to demonstrate without question that God's will is love. It's never selected hate. It's always Love, not just for some, but for all. As I complete my 39 years of active ministry as a Presbyterian pastor, I think back upon all the issues that the church has wrestled with trying to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Early in my ministry, the one that dominated the scene was the race issue. We could sing the songs... Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. But then we used our Bibles to find ways to justify and sanctify keeping the races apart. I'm not proud of it, but I have his manuscript. My grandfather preached a biblical sermon with sincere conviction, justifying slavery of the black race. White supremacists still get many, many votes. We did the same thing in not allowing women to be ordained as elders and ministers. The Bible says that women are to be quiet in church. Shh! and obey their husbands. It's in there somewhere. It's in the Bible. It hurts. 
My mother was so pleased to be nominated as the first elder of the Forest Lake Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. And my father said that he had read the Bible and no wife of his would be elected an elder. My mother has never been elected an elder in the Presbyterian Church. The third issue has been the response of the church to faithful gay and lesbian Christians in the membership and on the staff and leadership of our congregations. Some of y'all have been here long, as long as I have. You remember a meeting we had August the 5th, 2001? We filled the social hall with probably 200 Presbyterians and we talked about homosexuality and the Christian faith and we sought the heart of God on the issue. I was so proud of our church. We're such a gentle-spirited church. Some of us stood up that day and shared about how their family members have come out of the closet and they're not heterosexual people, but their love for their family and their gay members of their family had changed their feelings on the whole issue. Others spoke that they were still very uncomfortable with the presence and acceptance of gay, gay Christians at church. They just didn't think it was right. One thing I've been doing recently is cleaning out files so Alan can have my file cabinets. I still have in my files a letter that two church members wrote to me three weeks after that meeting in August 2001. They wrote to me and to the session, so it was a public letter. They wrote, the Bible, God's word to us, is very clear on how God feels about those who practice homosexuality. God detests them. God abhors them. We should not allow Satan to stir the pot in our church. The two-page letter talks about God's hate for gay people and cites scriptures. But I went back and double-read it last night. It doesn't mention Jesus once. None of these issues have gone away, folks. They're still the agenda of the church, and they are alive. Kristen Clark is a journalist attorney who works with work issues. She has written in the USA Today recently that we see a rise in hate across our country right now. And that hate spills over into stores and work sites, and it enters her work as an attorney. She gave an example from November of last year. Justin Stute is a gay man who worked as a waiter in the Hickory Tavern in Indian Trail, North Carolina. One evening, working at the restaurant, serving tables, he served a mother and her son their meal, and when they left, they wrote on their bill, they did not leave a tip, 
but they wrote on their bill a hate message. They wrote out on their bill that that night they had been served by a gay man, and that had ruined their dining experience, and they would never come back. Folks in that restaurant saw what that lady had written to Justin, and they grieved for him, and they must have shared it with their friends, because the next day, a man came into the restaurant and took his ticket and wrote a very different message. Justin, the man wrote, God is love, Jesus loves you, and Hickory Tavern is lucky to have you. Merry Christmas. He must not have bought very much. His tab was $2.76. The tip was $500. The mark of Satan The trademark of Beelzebub is bitter division, competing factions rather than the unity of the Spirit in church or community. John McCall, whom now you love the way I love, was our Pentecost preacher three Sundays ago. He's a Presbyterian missionary to Taiwan. He hosted a group of us who went to visit him in Taiwan last summer. He showed us the places of his ministry. He took us to a lovely chapel at the seminary where he used to teach, the Presbyterian Seminary in Taipei. But while we were standing there inside the chapel, he said, this is the setting for one of the saddest days I've ever had as a believer in the love of God and Jesus Christ. He said it was in this place that the seminary gathered one night for a town hall meeting in the midst of a great controversy. The seminary was in deep conflict. It had become very bitter. The president, it seems, had fired a popular teacher, and the community was now torn apart at the seams, and they gathered together to seek justice and peace and reconciliation. John said he watched that night as friends on his friends on both sides of the issue spoke disrespectfully with each other and expressed hate toward each other in that Seminary Chapel. At last, and this surprised John, at the end of that horrible night, they asked John to come forward and pray over the mess. And John said, I didn't know what to do. I just wanted to go home. But he went and stood in front of his Chinese brothers and sisters, and he said, my mouth absolutely would not work. I could not open it. John McCall did not pray a single word. He just stood there and felt the tears roll off his cheek and hit at his feet. He said, my prayer that night were my tears, which is the posture of God when Satan comes and division happens. On this Lord's Day, let's just preach against Satan. Satan is not welcome at St. Simon's Presbyterian Church. Satan whispers in our ears, 
that God somehow approves our dislike of people who are not like us. Satan will even furnish us chapter and verse if we need it. And Satan will do his best to divide the church into arguing factions. But Satan will never offer us Jesus, the one who died for the whole world to make us one, one in his great love. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, we need to confess to you the selfishness and perhaps even the hate that dwells deep inside of us. We ask, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would cleanse us of such impulses, wash away every prejudice that we hold dear, that we might love as broadly as Jesus loved, even if we are accused of having Satan as our leader. Eternal Father, we thank you for your love and mercy. We pray for courage to love the next person we meet because we know the God who died in Christ for all of us. In Christ's name, amen.